Good afternoon. Good evening. I don't know how many of you guys were here last week, but I was interested to hear after last week's introduction what Jerry was going to say about me because it got got pretty interesting. So I was looking forward to that. My name is Peter Stonecipher. I've been a part of the church for about nine months, and like Jerry said, I've had the privilege to train um, first at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Um, some undergrad study. I was able to get a biblical studies degree there, and had a great time at Moody. I was able to dig into church history and theology and biblical studies and um, was also able to do a little bit of graduate school in Australia at a seminary over there and got to do some research and that was uh, that was interesting in its own way, um, living in Australia and doing research there. But um, tonight we're going to be talking about salvation, kind of getting to um, the heart of our faith, really. Um, what does it mean that we're saved? Um, what does that process look like in history, in our own lives? And so before we start, let's start with prayer. It seems like the best place. Father, we come before you this evening, and we're going to be looking into your word, and we pray that as we do that, that you would speak through me, and that you would speak um, to our hearts, that as we look at what the word says about salvation, our need for salvation, and how you carry out salvation in our lives, that our minds would be changed, our hearts would be changed, that really this discussion of salvation will result in your glory and your praise. And we pray that that is where honor would go to, is to your name. Thank you for this time that we can set aside to talk about your word in an environment like this. We thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, More than anything, thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that even now he's interceding for us at your right hand. Amen. What I want to do to start is to kind of set out what I'm not going to be doing tonight. Because when you approach the subject of salvation, there's kind of a lot of different conceptions. And and as I was preparing for this, I was wrestling all along with what am I going to do and what am I not going to do. So uh, the first thing I want to tell you is what we're not going to do tonight is have an in-depth look at our Savior or at the work of Christ. That was taken care of a few weeks ago when we studied Christology. And so our talk about salvation tonight is not going to be an in-depth look at what Christ has done on our behalf. We'll talk about it a little bit. It'll come up incidentally along the way. We can't talk about salvation without Jesus. Um, But that's not going to be the focus of what we're talking about tonight. The second thing we're not going to do is we're not going to talk about the benefits that Christ gives to us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week with things you're familiar with, justification, glorification, adoption, union with Christ, all those things that are glorious about our salvation, those benefits we get because of what Jesus has done. We're actually not going to be talking about that tonight either. Tonight we're going to be talking about how salvation comes to apply to us. What's the process from the work that Christ did to us being saved? How does that work out in history? What does that look like? And so because of that, our talk tonight is going to look a little bit like time travel. As I was preparing for this, I felt like Doc Brown working on the DeLorean, going to take you guys way into the past and into the present and all over the place. Um, But that's basically what we're going to be doing tonight is kind of this timeline of how has salvation been worked out in history and then in our own lives, in our personal history. So in order to start that, um, first we're going to be talking about what we're saved from. And I'm just going to read a few passages to kind of give us a clearer picture of the fact that we need salvation. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. 
And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of all mankind. As we read those passages, specifically that first one where Jesus says it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, the question that comes to our mind naturally is, are we sick? And if we are sick, what are we sick with? And if you were to kind of go out and take a poll of people and say, hey, do you think there's a problem with humanity? Do you think there's anything going on that we need saving from? You may get a few people that would say, no, I think humans are great. I think in general, you know, humanity is fine. There's not really a need. So you might get some of that, but more so than that, I think you would get a lot of people that recognize in humanity that there is some sort of disease that there is, but they might not agree on what that disease actually is. And so if you talk to somebody that has done work overseas or somebody that lives overseas in a really impoverished country, they would say, oh man, the biggest problem with humanity is we've got this extreme poverty and we don't care for the poor. That's our biggest problem. We've got all these people in the West that have all the wealth and we've got all these people in third world countries that that can't get it and they're just living in abject poverty. That's the big problem with the world that we need to take care of. And you could move on from there and you could, you could maybe go to a different country and you'd go to a country with a dictator and you'd ask those people what their biggest need is. What do you guys need saving from? And they'd say, we've got this guy that's over top of us and you know, we're just really under his boot and he takes all of our money and you know, he comes in and you know, there's just war going on. Our biggest problem is there's this guy with all this power and we need somebody better in his place to take care of us because right now it's not happening. Um, and you can move from there and say, you know, maybe violence is our biggest problem. Or if you come to the West where a lot of our basic needs are taken care of, people would talk about maybe meaninglessness. You know, we need to have a meaning to life. That's our biggest problem is people don't know what they're here for. And so we need to do this soul-searching type of thing and figure out what we're here for. And so the more people you talk to, the more you'll kind of get different answers on, hey, what is our need? What do we need saving from? But what the Bible tells us is first of all, yes, all of those things are a problem. And yes, salvation in Christ deals with all of those problems in God's own way. But that these things aren't so much the problem as they are symptoms of the problem. And the problem is sin. And so those verses we just looked at are telling us very clearly we have this big problem that feeds all the rest of these things. And if we're going to take care of the rest of these problems, we've got to deal with this one problem first. Sin is feeding all the rest of them. So we're going to turn to Genesis 3 to take a look at this problem more in depth. 
Because the Bible tells us certainly that we have a problem with sin, but how did we get to have this problem with sin? And Genesis 3 is going to tell us that. So you guys are turning to Genesis 3. We're going to be starting in the beginning of it. I'm just going to set the stage a little bit for the context here. You guys are, all, are probably mostly familiar with this. Um, but we find Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the simplest way of setting the stage for Genesis 3 is to say that this is paradise. God has just created the world in six days. He's made everything good out of nothing by the word of his power. And then he's got this crown jewel of his creation, this man, Adam. And he takes Adam and he places in his perfect creation in a perfect garden. And then he says, what can I do to make this even better for Adam? So he gives Adam instructions. And he says, Adam, you're going to work in this garden. You're going to keep it. But there's a few things you can't do. The one thing you can't do, actually, is don't take from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't take from it and eat. Um, That's the only thing you can't do. And, you know, God sets him there. And then he says, you know what would make this even better? Adam needs a perfect helper. And so, you know, there's this big dramatic scene where God takes a rib from Adam's side and creates Eve. So when you find Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2, they're there together in perfection. We're sitting at paradise. And so if you look at the world as it was then at the end of Genesis 2, and you look at the world as it is now with wars and dictators and diseases and all these different problems, the natural question is what happened? And the answer is Genesis 3 happened. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we see here the first sin, and and really in this first sin, we see the pattern for every sin that's taken place after that. We see disobedience to God's word, and that is the root of sin. That's what happened in Genesis 3, and that is still what's happening now when we sin. But the question you might have is, Adam and Eve are punished there. You know, we see them thrown out of the garden. Um, they, They have broken fellowship with God, but how did Adam and Eve's sin become our problem? That was something they did in the garden. What does that really have to do with us? And the first answer to that was, if you continue on in the narrative of Genesis, Adam and Eve's sin wasn't like a one-off thing, where it was like, yeah, they messed up, but then their kids were okay, and the next generation was okay. If you keep reading on in Genesis, the next chapter you see the first murder between Adam and Eve's kids. Then you continue on after that, and, and you read a genealogy, uh, between Adam and Noah, and every step along the way of that genealogy is, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And so you see this is carried on. And so some people will look at that and say, yeah, sin continued to be a problem, but it was mostly because Adam was just a really bad example. And so he set this bad example in the garden, and everybody kind of after that followed along with him. And that's why we have this great problem with sin. But the Bible makes clear to us that it's not just that Adam set this bad example and then we've all kind of followed along. 
There's something deeper that's going on there. I read a section from Romans 5 earlier, uh, but I'm going to read two more verses from Romans 5. And, um, you know, there's debate about this passage as far as what is it actually saying about Adam's relationship to the rest of, of mankind. But I think these two verses, in verses 18 and 19, are particularly clear. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So it takes what Adam did and said, Adam did this one thing, everyone died. Adam did this one thing and everyone became a sinner. And it's not the only place that we see this. Um, as the New Testament talks about sin, there's two other pretty vivid pictures um, that talk about sin and what our relationship is to sin. And it's not just this kind of thing where it's like, yeah, we're pretty good people, but we sin every once in a while, and, you know, everybody messes up. It's not a big deal. If you look at, at Romans 6, specifically in, in verse 17, Romans six seventeen says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The picture here is sin being a slave master to us. Again, it's not this thing that we're kind of like, yeah, I'll dip into sin a little bit today, but then I'm going to go and I'm going to live righteously. It's Our life is a life of slavery to sin if we're apart from Christ. That's a big deal. And if you want an even starker picture or an even more vivid picture of what it's like for us to be under sin, what Adam's sin has affected for us, you go to Ephesians 2, and it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sin is not this occasional indiscretion that we deal with. Sin is this lifestyle of death. And that's where we are as human beings. So as, as we continue on, I hope that you guys are starting to feel this need that we have as human beings for salvation. It's not like, hey, you know, poverty is a big issue. Maybe we can kind of deal with that over here. Or, you know, this dictator is a pretty big problem. Or, you know, we've got these people in the West that don't even know what to do with themselves because they have so much. Sin is underlying all of these things. And sin is affecting all of these things. And so... Like I said before, some people will take Adam and say, he's just an example of a bad guy, and we just all happen to follow him. What I'm hoping to make clear is that we're slaves. We're dead in our sin. We don't need a counterexample to Adam. We need a Savior, and we need salvation. And so as we move forward, that's the need that we have, and that's the need that we're going to see the Lord provide um, as we go through this process. So we've kind of set the background here saying, hey, here's our great need as human beings, sin. This is what we have to deal with. Now what we're going to take a look at is how is this worked out in history? How does salvation come to be? Um, and so it's going to kind of turn from this background setting to a little bit more of a timeline from here on out. First thing that we want to look at um, when we're talking about salvation is addressing this question of who and when is salvation first dealt with? Who first deals with sin? Who initiates salvation, and, um, and, you know, when does this take place? And so that's the first thing that we're going to be looking at. And one thing we kind of brushed over in Genesis 3 as we continued on is, God initiates this immediate response to sin. 
in Genesis 3.15, we have this kind of gospel and seed form. When when God is talking to Satan, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so here, you know, we'll see this kind of fleshed out throughout the scripture, but we have this shadow of Jesus immediately after the fall, where God is saying, you guys messed up. This is a big deal. I'm already working on it. Um, and so we have this first promise of Christ immediately after the fall. Um, but kind of the, the great thing for us, something that we can rejoice in, is that God's response to sin was not something where he was like, man, I made these humans and then all of a sudden they've fallen. What am I going to do with these guys? Um, you know, maybe I could whip up something with sending my son down there on kind of a rescue mission and see what happens there. The Bible tells us that God was working out a solution to our problem before we even had one. Before we even knew that we had a problem with sin, God is taking care of it. And so if we go to Romans 8, 29 and 30, this is kind of a classical um, verse in the New Testament on salvation. And so in Romans eight twenty nine, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We get these two terms right at the beginning of these verses, foreknew and predestined, that are telling us that God was already dealing with this problem before Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And before he issued that promise about his son coming, he was already working on it. First thing I want to do is to define foreknowledge. It's one of these words that we kind of come across and might skim over, but um, basically foreknowledge is something that grows out of our belief that God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. Foreknowledge is God's comprehensive knowledge of future events. He knows everything that will take place before they take place. And I hope that's not too debated in here. Uh, we believe that God is, is all-knowing, and so it should make sense to us that he doesn't just know the past and the present perfectly. He also knows the future perfectly. But Paul actually moves beyond that, that God doesn't just have a knowledge what's go- of what's going to happen, specifically with salvation in this context. God is, all, is actually willing what's going to happen, and that's what we see um, when he talks about predestination. And I realize when I get to this, this is probably the least controversial thing that I'm going to talk about tonight is predestination because everybody kind of sees the same way on this and we can just skim right over it. (laughs) So the thing, though, that we do have to remember is as believers, predestination is a biblical concept. And so however we deal with it, we do have to deal with it. We can't say... Uh, predestination is a big word. I don't even know what that means. Let's just move on. Predestination is a very biblical concept. And so however we do deal with it, we do have to deal with it. Um, And I find the doctrine of predestination to be a comfort and to be a joy. And hopefully after talking about it a little bit tonight, you guys will as well. Um, But what this passage is doing, it's moving forward in time, at least logically, where God didn't just know who was going to be saved and he is talking about people here. He says, those whom he foreknew. Um, he's not foreknowing ideas or vague concepts. He's foreknowing people. But he's actually predestining people as well. And so this is a personal, involved type of thing. 
um, that he's talking about. And so we're going to define predestination as God's choice of persons for salvation or condemnation. I'll say that again. Predestination is God's choice of persons for salvation or condemnation. There's a positive and a negative aspect there. Um, To be fair, the New Testament and the Old Testament deal a little bit more with the positive aspect. Um, But there is kind of this negative aspect as well that we don't want to skim over. Uh, And so I want you guys to turn to Romans 9 as we talk about this. Romans 9 is going to kind of highlight this positive and negative aspect. And again, I just want to say, I know this doctrine is hard. I know it's difficult to understand. Um, It's something I've had the privilege to study and to read about and wrestle with, and I'm still wrestling with it. Uh, This doctrine is not easy, but it is in the Word, and so we need to deal with it. So in Romans 9, starting in verse 6, it says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on, a, on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Predestination is summed up, in my opinion, in verse 18 there. It says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What I want us to have absolutely clear after this, after this section is, who initiates salvation and when did it take place? I hope after reading this verse and after kind of seeing some other, other verses, even God's initiative right after the fall, we can all agree that God initiates salvation. It's on Him to do it. He places it on His shoulders. It's not a matter of us saying, man, we've really got a problem here. What are we going to do? God's at work on the, on the issue. Um, and he's, he's got a solution to the problem. Um, but then we also want to make clear when this took place. Um, and so the verses that we just read, we're talking about Jacob and Esau specifically. And it talked about um, God deciding between the two before they were born. Ephesians 1 is a little bit more specific even. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And we could go on from there. What I want us to see is, in eternity past, 
something that we can't even fathom, God being outside of time. He's already decided how he's going to solve this problem of sin for us. God is at work solving this problem of sin before it's even a thought in our mind. And like I said, I understand this comes with a lot of theological and philosophical issues, and people have a lot of questions with it. Um, but I think more than anything, we just need to see the grace of God in working our salvation out from eternity past. We're going to move on from there. Um, we're still in this timeline. I was thinking about how you would draw a timeline for this, and I don't even know how you would draw something in eternity past. Um, I think it would be off of an actual timeline. Um, but we're going to move from these kind of a little bit more abstract concepts of foreknowledge and predestination, and we're going to move into something more solid. Uh, all of us have had, um, or most many of us have had, a salvation experience, we'll call it. And so um, we have this concept of maybe some of us were saved growing up in the church. That was my story. Um, maybe some of us were saved at a revival. Maybe some of us were saved over coffee with a believer who cared about us, reading the word. Um, I had the, I heard the story when I was in Bible college of a guy that got saved reading commentaries. And so I guess that's possible as well. Um, that's maybe not the common experience, but this guy found some commentaries and read through them, and he was saved. So um, what I'm saying is we've all had some sort of salvation experience, and they're all diverse. Um, and so, you know, some of them are, are this very loud, dramatic thing where I was this person, and then the next day I was this person because this happened, and this preacher, you know, was in my face, and next thing I know I'm, I'm a missionary in Africa or something like that. Um, or it could be a very quiet thing over time where you've got a friend that you've been working through Scripture with, and after years of talking about the Lord, this person finally comes to faith. Um, but everybody has some sort of salvation experience. They all look a little bit different. What we're going to hone in on tonight is, although all the experiences are a little bit different, there's hallmarks of our experience that are all the same. And that's what we're going to key in on. The Bible talks about these experiences. Um, and so we're going to focus on those because we're moving out of this kind of sketchy, fuzzy eternity past and moving into how does salvation come to affect me personally. Um, and not that the eternity past wasn't personal. It was. Um, but a little bit more of how does this take place in my own life um, in time. So that being said, each, each experience is unique, but the Bible sets parameters on those experiences. And so as much as somebody might come to us and say, hey, this is great, I got saved, and this is exactly what happened. Um, and like I said, the external things could look a lot different. What's going on behind the scenes and what's actually taking place in their heart is the same for all of us. And so the first thing we want to talk about is calling. And as we talk about calling, there's actually two types of call that we can see in the New Testament. Um, one is an external call. One is a call that we can see, that we can put our finger on. Hey, that's the calling that was taking place. There's another one that God's working behind the scenes, an internal call. And so we're going to talk about the gospel call first. And I want to define gospel call as human proclamation of the gospel to an unbeliever. And so whether that's a preacher whether that's somebody reading the Bible for themselves, whether that's us in a conversation with our neighbors, or whether that's a guy reading a commentary, in some way, shape, or form, the gospel word is proclaimed to someone. Um, and that's what the gospel call is. So we look at Romans 10, 14 through 17. This is kind of the hallmark verse of this. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I think it's, I don't know if I'd say it's trendy, but it's, it's popular in Christian circles to talk about being a witness to people and not saying something. Um, you know, we can witness to people through our actions. And I never want to downplay the fact that our actions need to be aligning as closely to the word as they can. We need to back up what we're saying with how we live. Um, but what this passage is making clear is if we're actually going to be a witness to somebody, if we're actually going to evangelize someone, if they're actually going to come to faith in Christ, at some point along the way, they need to hear something. They need to be approached with a message. And that message is the gospel. Um, verse 9 of this same chapter kind of gives the most bare bones outline of what this message is. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, do I think we should take that specific verse and that should be the entirety of our gospel proclamation to unbelievers? No. But I think that is a bare bones of, you know, at least these things need to be in play. Whatever else you discuss, the lordship of Christ and God raising him from the dead. And like I said, the New Testament is going to fill in other things we need to talk about. Each situation is going to be different. But this word about Jesus, about him being the Lord, about him being resurrected from the dead, has to go out to unbelievers. And if that doesn't take place, they're not going to be saved. One of the things I'm going to talk about later, I also want to hammer home now, is we've been talking a lot about God's power, his initiative, his, his sovereignty over the process of salvation. And one of his prerogatives in doing that is God is not only chose, choosing who he's going to save, he chooses how. And he has chosen to save people through the preaching of his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. And so if we're going to be faithful to that, we need to be proclaiming the gospel to other people. Like I said, we'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, but uh, So that's the gospel call. Um, that's the call that everybody's going to hear, and that's what they have to respond to um, to come to salvation. But what the, the New Testament also talks about is not just this gospel call of, hey, kind of this general cast the net out um, and see whoever you can gather in, but actually a very specific internal calling as well. I read Romans 8 before, 8, 29 to 30, and that's the kind of calling that's spoken about there. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He there is talking about God. And you notice it's this unbroken chain of this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And so it's not like God predestines this whole big group of people, and then some of those might get this special thing called a calling. And then if you're really special out of those people, you're going to get this thing called justification. That's really great. And then if you know, you're the cream of the crop, you're actually going to get glorified. That's the best thing that could happen to you. Paul says it's this unbroken chain of what happens in the salvation process. And all we have to kind of do is use common sense and say, hey, there's a ton of people that have heard the gospel that don't respond to it. So is that the kind of calling that he's talking about here? And the answer is no. He's talking about an, an uh, internal calling that actually results in salvation. And so effectual calling is God's act of calling a person that accompanies the gospel call 
and results in salvation. So you have, you know, if I'm up here preaching the gospel to a room full of people, um, God is at work calling specific people to actually respond to it. And then there's a bunch of people that don't. And so there's these these two uh, concepts of calling going on. A great example that I came across of seeing this happen is in Acts 16. You guys can turn there real fast. This is the conversion of Lydia in Philippi. Acts 16, verses 13 and 14. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. This is Paul's kind of traveling group talking. Where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So you have this group of women. They all hear the same message. One of them comes to faith. One of them responds. And you see the Lord opened her heart. Um, And so this is where we see salvation kind of starting in our lives. If we think about our own stories, it's this gospel call and the Lord kind of working on our hearts to say, This isn't just some message a weirdo is preaching up front, but this is actually the truth. Um, And we see that start to work on our life. But the thing is, if we think back about what we talked about sin, it wasn't talked about that, hey, sin kind of puts these plugs in our ears, so we can't really hear the truth. We can hear it a little bit, but it's a little bit garbled. And so we just need God to kind of come and unstop our ears so that we can pay attention. It talked about us being dead in sin. And so if we're going to have any sort of response to a message, we have to be brought to life. And so it's not just this kind of calling where, hey, God's kind of pulling the earplugs out of our ears. It's God bringing somebody who was dead to life so that they can respond to this message that they're hearing. And so this kind of keeps us moving down this timeline of salvation. And we move uh, from effectual calling to regeneration, being born again. This is maybe a term that we're more familiar with, but maybe we aren't as precise about it. Um, And so we're going to look at John 3, verses 1 through 8, to talk about regeneration and what that means for us. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What an interesting answer. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel to you that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it goes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is what's taking place in regeneration, and this is where we have to be careful to not try to drive hard lines between all these these things happening. It's not like... Gospel call happens. Five minutes later, effectual call happens. Five minutes later, the person is regenerated, and then we're going to move on to conversion. It doesn't really work like that. It's the gospel call is going out. 
God is working an effectual calling in a person's heart, and the Spirit is making this person alive, all kind of at the same time. Um, and so it's just kind of hard to say, you know, this, then this, then this, then this, um, because the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. It's just kind of, hey, all these crazy things are happening, and it's this miracle of somebody being dead, being brought to life, and they're believing a message, and everything about them has changed. And these people that were slaves to sin are now alive and, um, and set free, and, and there's this huge change taking place. But what we see in regeneration is specifically this being dead and being brought to life, it being a supernatural thing brought about by the Spirit, and it also being this mysterious thing. It talks about the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. This being born again process is not something we can say, hey, if I do this, this, and this, I'm going to make that person born again. It doesn't happen that way. Um, just like, you know... Um, yeah, basically, we, we just we don't really have that kind of say in it. It's, it's a trusting in the Spirit, um, and the Spirit's going to do His work, making people born again. Uh, so moving on from there, um, we've seen this kind of this, then this, with uh, the gospel call, effectual calling, regeneration. And now we move on to something that actually is kind of taking place on the surface, at least part of it. Um, but conversion, this is something that we can say, hey, yeah, I remember this point, I said, you know, I repent of my sins. I don't want to do these things any longer. And I believe in Christ. And that's what conversion is. It's the saving human response to the gospel, which consists of repentance and faith. We have both of these things held in tension, um, and there's not conversion without these. And so uh, a couple verses that talk about these in tandem, Mark 1.15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See the same thing in Acts 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have these kind of two things of the repentance of turning away from sin and the faith of turning to Christ. And both of these things have to be present in conversion. And sometimes the New Testament will talk about one and not the other. These things are implied. If you're truly to turn from your sin, you're turning to the one who's going to free you from that sin. Um, and if you're truly going to have faith in God, you're not going to be clinging on to sin and those types of things. And so uh, repentance and faith are these essential elements of conversion. Um, and one thing that I wanted to bring up as we talk about repentance and faith, there's a lot more that can be said about these things. But repentance and faith are active and ongoing. This isn't something that happens at the beginning of the Christian life and it's kind of like, yeah, about five years ago I repented and I believed in Jesus. And, you know, that was just kind of the start of my Christian life and I've moved on from there now. Repentance and faith is something that we are doing constantly. We're constantly turning from our sin. We're constantly turning towards Christ, clinging on to his promises um, and holding on to him. And so um, a few passages that talk about these, um, I'm just going to read real fast. Um, Ezekiel. 18, 30 to 32, talks about, it's kind of a good picture of repentance. Um, and so I'll read that for us real fast. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. 
Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Again, this idea of, you know, these are your, there's your sins and your transgressions and your iniquities, and you're turning away from those things. You're casting them away from you. And one of my favorite portraits of faith is in Romans four eighteen to 21, talking about Abraham. Just a great picture of what faith looks like. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I don't know of a better definition of faith than that, that God is able to do what he promises. Um, and I just think that's a great picture of faith. And so like I said, at, at the conversion experience, it's this turning away from sin, turning to Christ. And it's kind of, you know, I wouldn't say all downhill from there, but as we're talking about the timeline of a conversion experience, um, you know, that's where our Christian life starts. Um, that's us being born into this baby believer, and then we can grow up in Christ from there. Um, but we've gone through this kind of timeline of what happens for us at our conversion experience. And like I said, it looks different for all of us. But those are the things um, that are kind of the hallmarks of the Christian faith and what makes us what we are. And so we've gone a long way, and I'm just going to wrap up here so we can have some time for questions. Um, a lot of tonight was descriptive. And that kind of made it hard on me in preparation because I just felt like I was saying, let's turn to this, I'm going to define this this way, and then this next thing happens. And then we're going to define that and read this verse and move on. And so you can kind of be moving down this timeline and think, well, that's really great that I have a working knowledge of what happens in salvation. But so what? That's always a big question when we're coming to the Word, when we're studying theology. So what? What does this mean for my life? There's a lot of things that we could pull out of this, but I want to pull out two things in particular. I could have talked about this a little bit more, but salvation is a sovereign work of God from first to last. Not just in God's foreknowledge, in His predestination, but even as, as we start to look at things that we think are more about humans, like faith, the Bible is pretty clear that faith is not of us. It's of God. It's a gift that He gives us for us to have. And so... From the beginning of salvation to the end of salvation, it's all a work of God. And as, as we think about that, and immediately, I think for most of us, we start thinking, yeah, but, you know, what about this and what about that and the other thing? And, and these objections start to come up in our mind because it's so hard for us to comprehend that, that God is sovereign over salvation those things are fine and good, and there's a day for us to ask questions and to go to the Bible with hard questions and to study and to see what the Word talks about these things. That's great. We need to do that. We need to do that with an attitude, understanding that there are certain things the Bible doesn't reveal to us and that we have to trust the Lord in them. But moving on from that, as we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, more than anything else, as we think about God saving us from eternity past, it should result in all glory and honor and praise being to God. 
And if God's sovereign work of salvation in us doesn't do that, we need to check our hearts. Because all it's saying is, Peter, you don't deserve this. You didn't do anything to deserve this. And God's been working this out for you from eternity past by His grace alone. And if that doesn't call, call you, cause you to fall on your knees and to worship Him humbly and to say, Lord, I can't even understand these things. Um, again, that should be a check on your heart. And, and so that's the first thing I want to take away from today is we've looked at this whole process and I want us to see written over the whole thing, God. He's doing it. And so that's the first thing that I want us to take away is just this attitude of worship and awe and, and almost exhaustion at, man, that, that's incredible. The second thing, um, second thing I want to talk about is that in God's sovereignty, I mentioned this before, in God's sovereignty over salvation, he's not only chosen who he's going to save, but how they're going to be saved. And the way he's chosen to save sinful men and women is through the proclamation of his gospel. And so we need to be active in our communities, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our family members, sharing this word in whatever way it is, whether it's conversations with a meeting over coffee to talk about the Bible, bringing someone to church, handing someone a commentary, whatever that looks like, we have to understand that God has chosen this means to save people. And so a lot of times that's kind of the charge thrown at, at, at folks that talk about predestination and at folks that talk about God's sovereignty over salvation is it says that it makes men really passive in this process. We can just kind of say, ah, oh, God's going to save who he's going to save, and it doesn't really, like, you know, me doing something isn't going to change that. God has chosen to involve us, and we need to be involved. I want to conclude, I know I said I wasn't going to talk a lot about Christ, um, but I do want to conclude, I would be remiss to be talking about salvation for 45 minutes and not talk about our Savior. And so, at the beginning, I read a few passages that talked about our need for a physician, the plight of humanity in Adam, and the fact that we're dead in sin. And I, and I kind of want to counterpoint those with what Christ has done for us. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ is the great physician who heals the disease of sin. Christ is the second Adam who leads us to justification in life. In Christ, we are no longer dead in our trespasses. We are made alive together with him and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Humans are infected with the disease of sin, but thanks be to God that he has graciously provided the medicine for us, his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that though we were dead in sins, you have made us alive in Jesus. Thank you for the process that you sovereignly oversee to bring us to a place of life. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And I ask that all glory and honor and praise be unto your name for salvation. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much. Amen.